Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. So hi, everyone. This is Ethan McTurn uh, for the Road Home Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with um, an author and Dharma teacher whose work I've been following for a little while, um, Osho's Andrew Earthland Manuel, whose uh, new book uh, I really have been reading and loving, The Shamanic Bones of Zen. Um, so Osho, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Um, so before we start recording, I, I told you that my first question, especially when it's a Buddhist or Buddhist person, is to ask about how you got into meditation or Dharma. And that led to a long conversation about names and titles. Um, but you talk about this in, in several of your books, but can you just give us maybe a shorthand of, of how your journey with Zen and Dharma began? Okay, so um, it's always an interesting story for me. Um, I always kind of, in one way, it's like, I don't really know how to swim, but I will jump into deep water. And so <laughs> every gateway has been deep water. And I didn't really have uh, an interest in Buddha or Buddhism, like a lot of people uh, that I know did. I had no idea who Buddha was or what Buddhism uh, meant. Where I would hear people talk about it. And this is when I was a Christian and when I was... Um, you know, um, I also practice some African religions, but um, I actually was introduced at 11 years old um, through the Soka Gakkai because they were used to be in a shopping mall. And that's the first time I really heard about it. And it sounded very interesting because I was always interested in new things and anything to not have to go to church sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> but this might be an interesting place to, to do. So I ended up uh, maybe 30 years later, almost almost 30 years later in Nishran Buddhism and um, Soka Gakkai International, the lay organization, uh, which is separate from the, the priest organization. Uh, the uh, Nishiran Shoshu. Um, so I practiced there. Some friends were practicing and um, I, I didn't ask to go at all. I was not interested. And they brought me, you know, to a meeting and I went and um, I was afraid of it. It looked like a cult and it wasn't. <laughs> and I was there for 15 years. And then I found myself in a, a, a three-week intensive, and I remember just walking in the Zendo at San Francisco Zen Center and um, realizing I had left Nishran and that I really, you know, they chant there quite a bit. It was a great uh, practice of shamatha concentration. And I left. I was a leader there, but I, they don't have teachers. They have leaders. I was a leader there. But I, I left kind of energetically. I didn't say I'm leaving. And I um, wanted the silence that Zen offered. And of course, is always this path of uh, seeking transformation and healing um, from one's suffering. So that's kind of always the obvious. But mine felt 
like a collective, more of a, a collective uh, search um, or solution, collective transformation and healing for uh, not just uh, people who are marginalized and oppressed, but for the world. I think I was always interested in that. And um, I mean, drove me into activism as well, religion and activism. So. What was, I'm wondering, because you talked about jumping in at the deep end, which, you know, my my studies of, of Zen, you know, I've, I've been to the San Francisco Zen Center or Village Zendo uh, here in New York. It does feel like, the, I mean, you could say the same thing about uh, Tibetan or, or Tantric Buddhism, but it does feel like Zen and the Japanese Zen lineages do have this quality of you jump into the ritual yeah. of practice of the deep end. So what was that three-week intensive like? It was crazy. It was ridiculous for <laughs> for it to be the first thing for me to do. I did not know that they had one day <laughs> since. <laughs> I had no idea. That's how new I was. And here I was. Uh, it was recommended. So I guess the person who recommended it thought I could do it. So um, it's modeled after their uh, Tassahara schedule, which is very intense. And I I remember struggling on the in the Buddha hall, sitting on the floor, I think trying to learn how to tie my bowls, you know, for Orioki. And I was the last one there, and I was there at least an hour after the class, still trying to figure out how to tie my bowls. And so I got it. I wasn't gonna get it in that moment. But it felt um as it was moving along that ultimate silence day after day after day, even though we had, we did have classes and we had Dharma talks and you could uh, get a practice discussion or interview is in some people's traditions. And I just found so much about myself that what I was holding in my heart that uh, before then I, I saw as anger and rage and, and during the uh, three-week intensive, I found that it was grief mm. and a great amount of grief. And so I was, so the healing and transformation and um, being in a collective space, but not talking, you know, just breathing together our lives, moving that way, uh, just created an environment I've never had before. I was just, you know, I had meditated by myself. But in community, it was different. And then having the schedule. So I came out of there changed. I I still see and feel that change. Can I describe it completely? Not really. Um, people who saw me later were like, wow, you could see what happened to you in three <laughs> weeks, like in your face. And that's like, oh, so maybe finally, you know, all that pensiveness and whatever I was holding, maybe that was gone. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I felt different. And so um, I kept at it. Yeah. So the, the themes of, of your writing that I, and, your, and your story as both a Dharma student and teacher that I keep picking up on, especially in your earlier book, The Way of Tenderness and The Shamanic Bones of Zen, is your experience in the Black church is a big part of it. Um, your, your life as a scholar Right. And so there's a lot of scholarship in this and, and seemingly like what other scholars missed uh, about the history of Zen or Western scholars you feel have maybe missed or not fully 
acknowledged about the history of Zen. And then the, the mysticism and the, the indigenous wisdom, the, the mysticism that comes from ritual and ceremony. So it feels like there's a sense that these things have been kind of torn apart, especially the, the kind of more secular psychological approach to these teachings versus the spiritual or mystical. So can you talk about those different sides of yeah. yourself? And well, your I, yeah, I think I'm very um, sensitive to fragmentation. <laughs> uh, I, and I, I think I am a person who sees everything whole. I think I always have, you know, seen a, a whole within um, um, <clears throat> places that, you know, people might see individuals or parts or things like that. And when I see things, it, it amazes me when it, it comes together and it's something that no one's talked about. <laughs> that this is here too, you know? So um, I think because I came from, well, church and church, I like the rituals in church. Uh, I um, Communion is one of those rituals. Uh, baptism. I couldn't wait to get baptized because I, I wanted that ritual. Didn't want to go to church, but wanted to be baptized. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Well, I didn't want our church lasted too long. I think it was too many hours. I, I wanted to talk to the preacher about that. You know, <laughs> I, I think a whole lot of people had liked it to be shorter. All my all my cousins were Catholic, and so you know, because everybody from Louisiana is Catholic, usually black or is 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 a Catholic state, and I don't think people really realize how how Catholic some of the black people were. And so, um, so anyway, I, I liked what was being talked about in church, like life and death. Mm. And so that was interesting to me. I had, cause I had lost a friend, um, when we were six years old and it was a shock to me cause I didn't know children died. And, and, and I think it perturbed me and still does today <laughs> that I still have that feeling like, oh my God, you know, I'm going to, I could die at any time. So I think that um, also doing ritual and ceremony in indigenous cultures, African and native, helped me when I got to Zen to be there. It was easy to be in that three-week intensive because it was like you walk into the the Zendo, you do it this way, you bow that way, you eat this way, you chant this chant. And that was just what I knew already. So it was very easy. I already had a concentration practice from Nishran um, and uh, and chanting. I already knew how to chant in, in that sense. So it felt it was a fit. It was an easy fit. Now, they weren't talking about the Zen as a ritual or ceremony. As a matter of fact, at sometimes it felt like I could uh, end up in the principal's office for not doing it right <laughs> or something, you know, like it, people would get very angry. Oh, my God, why are you going that way? And and I never um, I it was kind of comical to me, you know, that part, you know, that that mm-hmm. was I understood the the intensity, but it was the intensity was out of context that it was out of the context of reverence. You know, it was it was stuck in something and I could I could see it and um, and sometimes felt and I have done that protected some people 
from it because I said, oh, they're going to get in trouble, <laughs> you know, and I just want to protect them, you know, in that practice. For me, when it happened to me, it was just funny. I would end up laughing. That probably was perturbing to them. Like if I didn't cut the carrots right or, you know, I would just kind of just chuckle in the kitchen, chuckle at myself and or, you know, bow too many times. And I would just laugh. I thought it was funny, you know, if I overdid it, you know, but for some people, it could end up feeling um, like they're being disciplined and are they in the military or something like that, which is there. Yeah. And yeah. It, you know, that feeling is there. I, I, I And that's why I wrote the book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, because I felt like if even if you don't teach it as shamanic or even say this is ritual, this is ceremony, but that you could feel within the body, the work and the movement was reverent. I think that we would get more out of the time spent there in practice. And I think that with all traditions, I just, all Buddhist traditions and maybe all traditions, uh, spiritual and religious traditions, um, but I'm not, I can't speak to all of them because that would not be appropriate. But uh, so I speak to Zen. Um, right. And so I think that uh, it's been, there probably was a, a time, I say it in the book, where in trying to bring Buddhism into a country that's predominantly Christian, um, meant they want and wanted to probably, and also the new age coming into existence, wanted to distinguish themselves from new age witchcraft and everything so they could fit into a culture or society that was uh, Christian. And so I could see how that may happen. On the other hand, I also could see that some of the, the masters, Zen masters, or any master of any tradition, could have been Theravada too, that they kept some of those uh, rituals and traditions, probably seeing that it might not work for Westerners. It might not, uh, it might not be, uh, they might not be reverent. With, right. with with the ritual or um, some of the, the forms that are part of the practice. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, this basic fragmentation uh, between the spiritual or religious, and I don't know if you consider those the same words, some people distinguish between, even between yeah, those two, but yeah. and on one side and the scientific or the secular, right? That That's a, that's a European right. thing, right? And I, so then that comes into... America and there's this well yeah. we say there is but yeah. you know it says in God we trust on every court yeah. room, but yeah. right <laughs> and yeah we trust in God's money so <laughs> that's why it's on the money so and only on the money <laughs> um, so you know science and science is as old as all indigenous people. And um, they even have affirmed that that the the Dogen tribe in Africa knew all of what was in the all the planets without any you know um, instruments to measure any of it. And science is to me the uh, this is personal, and maybe some other people believe this too. It's just a way of concretizing spirit mm. and affirming spirit. And affirming reverence and affirming the mystical and um, saying that it is so. So so now we got we get little doodads put in our head to see what meditation is doing so we could write it up 
and say, this is what meditation is doing without, (laughs) you know, someone like myself saying, this is what meditation is. This is what the three week intensive did for me, you know, around rage and grief that, you know, that could be measured, you know, um, technically. So in one way, it's, it's, it's Western in a sense and secular because it is, it, like you said, been separated from the mystical and the spiritual, the, and, and, but that it is that anyway, you know. Um, and every time I see a, uh, you know, maybe a discussion around science and Buddhism or, you know, uh, secular Buddhism, it always circles back to, to the beginning, to the root, it has to circle back to the root. And so are we still interested and are uncomfortable with the practice still, despite all the years that it's been here, still uncomfortable with the bones or the root of, of the practice or any practice, you know, I'm not just saying. And I do see religion and spirituality different, a little bit different, but they have some of the same roots. Right. As well. So um, they came from something uh, long ago. And so we just have a, an overlay on it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, science or measuring it. Uh, uh, I do have a PhD, so I have done research. That's another one of my titles. <laughs> Dr. Manuel and um, Dr. Osho, can we call you? Yeah, Dr. Dr. Osho, Dr. Osho, <laughs> Reverend Sensei, <laughs> and in the um, the African traditions, call me Ia and Ia. So I, I have a lot of titles. So um, wherever I am, and, and vulnerable, venerable is another one. People call me as well. Venerable. People call me vulnerable. So I'm vulnerable and venerable. <laughs> yeah, I am vulnerable. I <laughs> feel vulnerable all the time, especially when I'm talking. I feel very vulnerable, but uh, <laughs> more vulnerable than venerable. <laughs> but I think that it's it's only in our minds that this fragment, fragmentation and separation is, which is interesting because we always are talking about the oneness and the um, of the relative and absolute all the time, mm-hmm. but yet when we um, live out our lives and speak it, some of it's a language problem. But when we live out our lives, we 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 don't see it. We don't bring all of all of it in. So some people, I you know, they say, "Well, I'm not going to be religious because there's no God." You who's what are what? You, why are you chanting? Why are you meditating? You know, there's no need in taking any of this on. And I felt very, um, and I have been um, criticized for being a priest uh, and a Zen priest and wearing robes. And um, what was the criticism? That um, why would, you know, religious people are, um, you know, forcing people or influencing people's minds into a particular way of thinking and being. Um, One is to be passive, you know. Another is to, uh, they talk peace, and so they're not interested in the world. And um, people wearing robes um, think of themselves as better than others, Mm. Um, I have even been caught within Zen Center from other 
students who, you know, come in who haven't practiced, they're new, that I'm part of the corporation of Zen because I have a corporate robe and all kinds of things. People have all kinds of ideas about, uh, you know, um, religion and clergy. You know, um, I went to a, I'm a writer and been a writer and author long before I enter Buddhism. So that's why there's so many books. I'm not just going, oh, I think I write another Buddhist book, you know, <laughs> like we need more and more. I'm just a writer. That's who I am and what I do, what I enjoy. And so I was taking a course, going to take a writing course. And the teacher said, I almost didn't let you in into the course. It was um, memoir writing. And she said, it was my first time hearing this. She said, because you're a clergy. And I was like, wow, I never thought of myself that way. And she had been abused by a hmm. Catholic clergy. And I was like, I never saw myself in that place. But the, she opened my eyes. Of course, we became really good friends. And, I, and you know, she said, she was so glad she said yes, because I was a very big part of the class and helping, you know, creativity flow with everyone together collectively. And she was, you know, shocked and surprised. But it really um, opened my eyes to what it meant. And I still, it, it didn't stop me and it doesn't stop me from being who I am and wearing my robes. I do talk about what robes are to me. I don't know. I might have said a little bit about that maybe in Shamanic Bones. Mm -hmm. A way of stripping away the world and, um, and being in that, uh, showing my commitment to spirit and spirituality and... Um, not a commitment to the religion of Zen. So even in the book, I'm not completely talking to, about the religion of Zen as much as the spirituality of Zen and of Buddhism. Right, right, right. Well, part of what um, feels like kind of mushed together in that, you know, whatever terminology we use between religion and spirituality and mysticism, like when you talk about sort of an overarching narrative that there is this punitive creator who made you and, you know, and made you bad, by the way, somehow, you know, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of sin. Um, yeah. A lot of sin. Um, it's like, why aren't we mad at that guy then? Um, <laughs> Some people uh, are. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, and, and then, and then in those systems, maybe some people feel that if you have, like, it seemed like you kind of laughed off, the various precision and or rigidity of the Zen forms that you didn't always know exactly yeah. whether to go left or right. But I, if you go ahead, go ahead. I laughed off the, the way they looked at it and talked about it mm. and the way they, um, the way it was um, felt less reverent and more corporal, right. You know, like right. punishment if right. you don't do it right. You know, like I was in school. So that was kind of funny to me in that right. way. But not the the actual um, the, the formality of it was um, important, but not in the formality in the way they were holding formality. Right? right. There's many ways to hold forms, and every spiritual practice, every religious practice has form. Right. Every single one. There's not a one with that. Even if it's a new one you're cre creating today, it's going to have a form. Mm. But, no matter but what. so that way of looking at 
spirituality or religion, like a punitive creator mm-hmm. and the forms that would come from that. It's very different from like an indigenous approach where the, the earth has spirit, a person has ancestors, has lineage. But that's, there are that's like there support. There are like 10,000 more forms at a Sundance than there are at, <laughs> at Zen Center. Hmm. Like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of do not do's. <laughs> oh no, don't, don't, don't. A lot. There's a there's um there's patriarchy, there's racism, there's sexism, there's homophobia. All that's at Zen Center was at the African communities and in the Lakota communities, because we're all in that world, that mm-hmm. the same world. So even though the practice speaks to more than indigenous practice, hold this earth as the center of the practice, the forms in which they that are built from there, um, which doesn't, like I said, it doesn't matter even if you're in Wiccan, you know, there is a form built from how you're going to engage the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a ritual, there's a ceremony, and they all have form, you know? And so, um, but if you do the form without realizing, and we do this in Zen, right? Without realizing there's an emptiness in them if they don't, if you don't understand the true substance of the form and what the form is to help engage you more with the earth, which is mm-hmm. what Buddhism is supposed to be, do too. Buddhism is an earth-based practice, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so we're to get more in tuned with the earth. Now you might say, oh, you got to get in tune with your teacher. Well, okay, that could be one, as long as the teacher's in tune with the earth, right? And we find out if the teacher isn't, and you're, you know, then you're following um, something that whatever that teacher is, you know, bringing. My teacher, I don't think necessarily she was uh, in tune with the earth. Mm-hmm. I saw Buddhism mm-hmm. or Zen the way I did, but she was um, uh, excited and into the forms. And they would in the ceremonies. She w- it would excite her, and that was interesting to me. Mm. And so I I wanted to see why she was so happy, and <laughs> you know everybody else wasn't, and including myself. Like, huh, I don't know if that should be here and that kind of thing. And watching her be so excited about um, being at ceremonies and rituals, I watched, and she transmitted that to me without a word, without saying a word. It was just watching her, being with her, and and filling into what a bow can bring, mm. or touching the earth. You know, like uh, Thich Nhat Hans is touching the earth. I really love that Thich Nhat Hans um, passing um, and continuation was shown to the world. You know, because it actually, you know, I, t- I told my students, I said, I want you to watch all of the ceremonies. All of them, because that is Zen. It's not mm-hmm. in a book. It's not in anything. That's it. Just watch what they're doing. That's it. That's it. That's Buddhism, you know. And and the words are just there to stimulate us to bow deeper, to make the offerings to the ancestors, to um, understand uh, life, the nature of life. All of all of the ceremonies are, are about that. Mm-hmm. And so the Dharma talks are very Western. Um, 
and very uh, much, I tell my students, the cherry on top. And, you know, in the morning we chant, we bow, we, you know, then every time it's time to talk, I just feel like, wow, I wish, you know, we didn't have to because, (laughs) because that part is, we think we can talk our way into understanding the practice and you can't. Right, That's right. why it doesn't work for many. You know, it's like, well, you know, I try to be loving and kind and then this happens. You know, do I have to be compassionate to this person and this person did this? And this? That's because everything is in their minds. Mm. You can't figure out compassion in your mind. You can't even be compassionate, even though we say it. You know, we can't. I can't give it to you. I can't be compassionate to you. Mm-hmm. I can experience co- compassion, and hopefully, in our being together and interrelated, that compassion will spill into your life from my heart. That's mm-hmm. it. That's all. If I make an idea that I'm going to be compassionate to you, or I'm going to be loving and kind, that's my idea of loving and kind, my idea of compassion. And so, you know, I, you know, and you might do the same thing. And then we realize we have different ideas <laughs> and I go, well, that didn't feel loving. Or you go, oh, well, that didn't feel compassionate, you know? Yeah. And we do that like, okay, that didn't sound very Buddhist. And I've had people tell me that. <laughs> oh, people tell me that all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not very Buddhist of you. And don't, you know, you're ordained, they really go go for you, the juggler. It's, it's never Buddhists who say <laughs> yeah. that, by the way. <laughs> no, it isn't. But because it's but it's brought to the world in a particular way. So I always tell people, I said, do you think Thich Nhat Hanh was a perfect person? Of course, everybody thinks he was perfect. How could he not be perfect? Oh, my God. He was a saint. No, he was a man. And I bet you, if you talk to any other people, there was trouble. Yeah. There were problems. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's only real. So um, I I wonder, because you talked about there being, you know, and, and with our growing, under, hopefully growing understanding of how all of these systems, you know, influence our world, influence our, you know, our cultural, economic, political worlds, and also inf- influence Buddhism. Like, you know, I think, um, you know, you could definitely say Asian Buddhism is completely influenced by patriarchy as, as a system. And then obviously that you know, you could say intellectual and psych Western psychology and whiteness then brings that into the mm-hmm. US. But I wonder how that feels like it affects the need for rituals. Like is it is it um do the rituals need to change to be extracted from patriarchy, white centricity, or do we need to practice the rituals we've known in a different way? The rituals, there's nothing wrong with the rituals. The rituals and ceremonies are not, um, unless you make it that way yourself, are not, which we do, <laughs> and not necessarily oppressive or have patriarchy. And to tell you the truth, all spirituality and religion all over the world is heavy with patriarchy, heavy with oppression, you know, heavy with misogynistic ideas and on and on and on. And so, um, and that, so what in the world, let's look at that. What in the, what has happened in the world in which that the, the pathways of our transformation and healing 
are possessed are seem to be owned by um, a particular kind of human being, mm-hmm. you know, that looks a particular way. You know, so what what has happened? And I've been in a lot of dialogues with people around this. Has been you know very interesting. Um, one person I remember. This is the one story that stuck in the mind that that men took religion because they couldn't have a baby. They couldn't create a baby, and that was an interesting idea. So people are talking about so they could they could do, get in this place of creation, but not that place of creation. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was an interesting idea. It stuck in my head. Another one was uh, that the women gave away the religion. They had the religions in the spiritual past and they gave them to the men. And that was interesting. I was like, and, and the guy asked, who was the first woman that did that? And I was like, huh, that, 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 it was uncomfortable. It was, I'm not saying I, both ideas are uncomfortable. But it's just to look at how this permeates everywhere. So for me, being um, a person, uh, a Black person, a queer person, um, disabled, everything, name it. I tell people I'm the poster child of oppression. And so (laughs) name it, I'm in it. To And I say it in the book, to be able to offer, make offerings to ancestors in the midst of it all is profound to me. And that's what makes ritual and and ceremony profound and transformative, you know, if we're doing it in reverence and if everyone can participate in it. So that's also giving, passing on the rituals and ceremonies to everyone. So that would be a change to everyone, not just, you know, um, particular embodied person. Mm-hmm. You know, this person's going to do better than that person, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but even if you change the embodiment of the person, say, um, do they have, you know, you give it to someone who normally doesn't have power or normally doesn't, are not part of um, making decisions and changing things, then nothing changes you know, mm-hmm. in, in that way, if they don't have input, you know. So as a person that I am, um, the only input I can have on Zen is to write the shamanic bones of Zen. <laughs> it's a big that's, influence. <laughs> that's it. But what if you're not a writer? You know, what if you're not that type and, you're, and you look like me and you're, you know, embodied in my way? Um, you know, um, you don't have the opportunity or the privilege mm. to um, impact, you know, religion or spirituality. So I think that that's important. And then what if you're not the one to impact it? Mm. You know, I there was a story of this person who was of color and she was part of a, a community and she was one of few, I guess, black people. And they just picked her out to be the person to help them deal with diversity and, you know, try to develop uh, engagement and more people of color. The person destroyed the community. Because mm. just because the person was Black doesn't mean that's the person. That's like saying, well, we need more Black surgeons. You're Black. Here's a scalpel. Go on, do the surgery. Right. And the right. person gets in there, you know. <laughs> 
Oh no. Whoa. You know, so I'm thinking of a few black politicians right now. Yes. Okay. There you go. Herschel Walker, (laughs) Clarence Thomas. There you go. There you go. There you go. And you know, to them is no difference to some people that's okay. They're black. We do have black people. You know, so our women, you know, the <laughs> women have more, you know, <laughs> patriarchal consciousness than a man. You know, it's just so really we're, you know, we're dealing with, you know, particular consciousness development and training, you know. And I think there's a lot of training that needs to go on to help even the rituals, even if you include Dharma talk, which it was a which ritual, uh, they used to do what's called Taisho. Some Zen centers stu- still call their talks Taisho. And that's what the Japanese did. They did Taishos. And Taisho comes from a place of having um, set so deep and so long and seeing and looking that when you speak, you're speaking from that place, that, that divine place, so that the, it's, a, it's not a talk. It's a message from mm-hmm. the earth. Mm. A message from the earth to the people. Those are the kind of talks all of us should be doing, no matter what the tradition is. Mm. So it should come from the bowing. It should come from the the offering. Yeah. It should those words. Even when I write, when I write, I do sit and try to bring forth that when I'm writing. It doesn't always. I'm not successful all the time, but I I try. You know, my best. Osho, can I ask a little bit more about ancestors? Because it feels so important. So, And also, I had a guest on, uh, a friend of mine, a few podcasts back, um, Mm -hmm. Maude Newton, who's a cisgendered white woman, uh, who wrote a very long-researched book called uh, Part Memoir and Part Sort of Social uh, Science called Ancestor Trouble. And it's the social science part is about sort of our newfound obsession with genealogy and ancestry.com. Oh. But it's also about really do, uh, looking through her uh, family ancestry and mm-hmm. finding out that yeah. she had ancestors who were slave owners and, sure. and trying sure. to reckon with that. And um, so, I mean, when when I hear somebody from an indigenous perspective um, or Lama Rod Owens or yourself talk about ancestors or some of the like tantric visualization practices, there's a sense of it being supportive and kind of like fully supportive of your own being in this moment that you're carrying yeah. forth something yeah. good and strong and wise. So you're carrying forth everything. Mm. You are also car- carrying forth a uh, slave mentality. Mm. You know, you're also carrying forth the alcoholism. You're also carrying forth the murderers. You're also, you're carrying Mm -hmm. forth all of it and you can't help it Mm -hmm. because you were born of it. You were born through it. And then I was helpful because people have been asking me a lot about it. And I was thinking maybe I should write a book on ancestors as well. Is that ancestors um, are not only, you know, your bloodline is your, you know, spirit line, or you can, um, you know, your spiritual path line, or it could be the earth or the moon. Or this, anything that was here before you is an ancestor. The plants, the trees, the med, all that was here, water, all ancestors, that, that's all here. However, we really are definitely caught at this kind of human bloodline, you know, ancestors. And literally, I have 
some struggle with my own bloodline from Buddha on my on my transmission <laughs> to my own becoming a teacher. There's some names I wanted to like cross out, and so, but I didn't. Meaning I didn't. In, in the Dharma lineage. Yeah, in the Zen, my own Zen lineage. You know, I wanted to like, oh, I don't want that teacher on there, yeah. and. I know um, what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was like, yeah, but that teacher taught your teacher. Taught your teacher. So, and that teacher brought something to you. Not the same thing, maybe the things that that teacher did that I don't like. I mean, I'm really embarrassed of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't even speak the name. Uh, so, uh, and upset about it. It's still an upsetting thing. So it might be good for me to write about that. But... Um, when you're an ancestor, you're no longer a person. Mm. They're not people. So we got to get to that. They're not people. And the only way that they're people is inside of us mm-hmm. and how they affected, impacted us. So if we're dealing with our psychological, emotional impact of a person that has come and gone. Then that is a psychological, sociological uh, engagement and endeavor. That is not, the to me, the realm of spirit, mm-hmm. the realm of Buddhism, mm-hmm. the realm of anything outside of, you know, you need to get help. Now, I, we all have somebody, <laughs> all of us, we all have groups of people. I remember being in a ceremony. It was a, a, a with an African woman from Ghana. It was a multicultural mixed race. And one of the women came to me and she said, I'm just so sorry for what my ancestors did. I'm I'm just so upset of who they are. I don't want to be them, you know. And um, and they were of a religion too that, you know, did a lot of things. And so I said, yeah. I said um, I'm sorry for what my ancestors did too, mm. because my ancestors we did sacrifice a lot of our own people mm-hmm. in order to be who we are today, to be free, you know, and did it in ceremony, you know, and so it's known, you know, the the tribalism and how it really was not, a, there's not, everything's not beautiful about being African <laughs> or anything. It is not, it can't be, and it's not, that's just romantic romanticizing, um, you know, the human condition and acting like nothing happened. So maybe we didn't do it toward the white people, let's say, but our people did something and we are living that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a new thing, inter- it's trending, inter- intergenerational trauma. And um, a lot of folks are uh, who are not uh, healing professions, in the healing profession, including myself, uh, I'm not in that healing profession. I do not have a, a, a degree in psychology or therapy. I do have a P, my PhD is in transformative learning and integral studies, which does touch on it. But I'm not a healing professional. So when people come to me to talk about trauma, I send them someplace else. Mm-hmm. But when you want to come and, and talk about how to practice with the trauma, then you, I can do that. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. You know, as um, in, in Buddhism, is how to engage all that has disrupted and hurt and, um, you know, changed our lives. We can't go back and change that. 
but it is in us and it's there for a purpose. And I was just, I, it's such a simple thing. I tell people, you know, we hear it all the time. There is, and there must be mud in order for the lotus to grow. Mm -hmm. It has to be. And there's always going to be the horrible thing yesterday, the horrible thing today, and the horrible thing that's coming. So what do we do with horror? What do we do with things that like jump up on us collectively and personally? Because it's going to do that. I know that myself. I have had some horrendous, horrendous suffering that I don't even tell people because it's it's too much for them to take. That's too much for the other people. <laughs> That's how I feel. It's going to blow them out the water. I've seen people just like, oh, my God, when I tell them. So I don't, mm-hmm. you know, and it involves weapons. Mm-hmm. It involves my being hurt. It involves abuse, not sexual, physical abuse, you know, being just. So it's just to talk about that. And know that I'm not the only human being, not even in my lineage, my blood lineage, spiritual lineage. Even a tree has been hurt in a way that I have been hurt. Mm. That that there's some reason in our living that these things are present. And I think they're present to be used. Racism is here to open our eyes. If we don't open our eyes, and that doesn't only mean open to, oh, we shouldn't be racist. What makes us racist? And even inside ourselves, this is from the Buddhist perspective, inside ourselves, not going out and fixing all the races, that's another kind of work and job. It's not Buddhism. It's not. And so people are doing it, but it's not, that's not what it is. That's mm-hmm. not what we're there for. I think we can speak to it, but we're not there to erase it. There's no way I'm going to erase the racism of a 70-year-old institution in which it's embedded, I mean, mm-hmm. under the wood <laughs> of the building. It's not, it's not my job. My job is to come in and become awake yeah. to it and to come awake to the nature of life. So in understanding that, I can see the, that cycle in, in human beings, that conditioning in human beings. And I can see that conditioning in myself. I can see the poison and how the poison works, you know, and so that when we're in conversation, we don't dwindle into the same place of pain and woundedness. Mm-hmm. So one of my students was talking about being hurt by, you know, going into this whole thing about whiteness. And there's so much language around it now. And, um, and going on and on. And, and our, our sanghas are Black. And I said, where is the white person right now? Where, where is the person? And, and she said, I said, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or since she pointed to herself, the white person's in you. That's why you're talking about that. Mm -hmm. by people you know it's in your consciousness your mind consciousness and it keeps hurting Mm y'all you know and you keep trying to cut it out but it's in you because if you cut it out you're going to end up cutting some some something of yourself out you Mm -hmm. think you're cutting out the bad but there's no bad and good there just is Mm -hmm. this is the hard thing to take in about life (laughs) it just is and so um so when she got that, there were no white people in the room. 
it, it stopped the conversation, right? Mm. There was no need. Then she would have to talk about herself. And could she? No. No, because we're all taught right now to talk about white supremacy. We all can talk about it. Even seven-year-olds can do it now. You know, so that's great. I think we, we understand it. I think I believe in critical race theory. Been around long before everyone got upset. I don't understand. I'm not understanding <laughs> what's happening there, but it's old. It's, 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 it's not what they're upset about. Just Okay. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, what is this problem with critical race theory? So anyway, that, the point is all of this we can speak. And I think we've got more and more articulate about it. And now we're stuck. We're mm-hmm. very articulate about it. And now even you go into the Buddhist centers or you go someplace, it doesn't even have to be a Buddhist center. It could be any spiritual place. And all of a sudden, the the talk on white supremacy is more important than the ceremony. Mm-hmm. To me, the ceremony is what's going to transform it, but we don't trust that. Right, right. I, some people say, why should we trust Buddhism? Why should we trust this practice, you know? And um, and it's not why, it's do you trust it? And if you don't, you should go to what you trust. I do believe that. Go where you trust it and yeah. you enjoy it. This Buddhism is not required. Please do not become Buddhist. Yeah. You know, it's not required. Meditation is not required. It's not for everybody. You may, you may come awake drumming. You may come awake drumming, you know. So I think it's not important, you know, to me that, that, you know, we come in and and then we have to get everything fixed so that we can practice. It's not going to happen. We mm-hmm. can't. It's like going into a relationship and fixing the other person before you can have one. You know, OK, I'm going to fix you. You got to get better. So, so, us, so we can be together like only one person needs to get better at it, you know, rather than everybody. And so. I feel that we're losing, starting to lose ground in that of trying to uh, correct something that's uh, deep in the earth yeah. uh, around the world. You know, the, the black people did not get on the, on, were not allowed to get on the train in the Ukraine, you know, right. so, you know, it's everywhere. So it's something larger than ourselves, but how can we use it? Do we become hopeless and helpless? Or how can we use it to come awake to see? And do we trust that an individual can affect the people around themselves? Like if you came awake and I came awake, not understanding, we, we, both of us can talk white supremacy. We could talk it, but did we, what did we come awake to in our experience of it that, um, that changes how we are? Not that we're more smiling or we say hello more to, you know, black people or whatever. <laughs> or, you know, we're like, oh, yes, I love, you know, people who are transgender. You know, not that, but something deeper than that. And we're not there yet. We don't know what it is because we keep stopping at this place in which we think we know how to do it. Our strategy, yeah. our strategy of loving kindness, our strategy of compassion, because we stop there. But yeah. the only way to get past it to me is in the ceremony. I can be in ceremony with a person who I may not even know hate me. I may not even know. They might be bowing right next to me because that's what we can do. And that action 
change, when we bow together, that action can change the moment. Mm-hmm. It actually can change the moment. Now, we may have to do a whole lot touching the earth, you know, for it to change. And we may be afraid of the change. We may be afraid that if we change, somebody's going to get, um, you know, um, taken off the hook. We've already heard, we've heard that story. Who, you know, that, you know, you want to keep people hooked to make sure they know, you know, you're not going to get away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, but, uh, but that, that's a lot of work to keep a wiggling fish hooked. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Osha, maybe one final question. Because <clears throat> you have a lot of people, especially I think over the pandemic, starting, you know, a meditation practice on their own or maybe in online spaces. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> is there one, like, do you give people, obviously, you know, coming to a sangha and participating in ceremony, but if somebody wanted to just start with one little piece of ceremony, say, in their home practice, yeah. is there one way that you give an intro to ceremony? Like, is it bowing? Is it having an altar or shrine? But what's the first step of bringing a little more ritual into a person's practice? The first and foremost, and this did get transmitted. That's what I said. What what actually did get transmitted, you know, that to everyone in the Western world, which, yay, you know, that the, the main ritual that got transmitted was meditation and is meditation and is zazen. So the first thing is to sit. Is to sit upon the earth, and that's what the Buddha did. The living Buddha sat upon the earth, and all the Buddhas before him, and they were all genders, sat upon the earth to receive what the earth had. So when you sit in your house, you're not just sitting on your pretty cushion or, you know, oh, this is, this is great. You know, I should do this for 45 minutes. No, you just sit. You may grow into 45 minutes. You may not. When I first did it, set, it was five or 10 minutes. And you just sit. You're sitting upon the earth, which we never do. We always walk in and sit on our sofa mm-hmm. or whatever, or sit in a chair. We don't sit on the earth. We don't put our feet on the earth. We don't even connect because we don't think it's going to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, we just don't really feel that. But th- that is the first thing. The next is to make offerings. It doesn't have to be an altar. Just You can actually just put an orange in a candle and that's it. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be complicated. It's just an offering to what is, you know, from the earth. So we have the fire. All of it represents the, the, the elements. The fire, the incense, if you use incense, just means it's from the earth. It's the wood. You can, you can smell the tree without having to go find an agar wood tree, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You can you can um, use flowers if you know uh, incense is troubling, you know things of the earth, you know a stone, a rock, a piece of grass, you know it's just honoring that all of this was here for you, and um, you're honoring, acknowledging it that you're not here alone. The only reason why you and I are talking to together was because of of the earth, because of the people who came before us who actually literally brought us together at this moment in this time that we are speaking right now. I believe it. This is not a fluke. It's not just because you had a podcast and it's not just because I'm a Zen priest Mm -hmm. or that I'm Buddhist. 
there's something much larger working that has brought us together today. So just sit. Um, that's the first. Nothing, nothing extravagant. Nothing, um, you know, beyond your capacity. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, I really wanted to just take a moment <clears throat> to give another shout out to um, Osho Zendru's new book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, as well as some of your earlier books, especially The Way of Tenderness is, is dear to my heart. Um, yeah. And if anybody's more <clears throat> interested in Osho's work, you can just go to zenju.org, Z-E-N-J-U.org. Uh, Osho, thanks so much for, for being on the Road Home podcast. It's a real, real pleasure to be with you and listen to you and talk to you. And I uh, hope you'll come back sometime, even though you yeah. said you hate your own voice. Uh, I, well, I, 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 will, I, I will come back, but I won't listen. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I will. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I won't listen later. I listen as I'm talking, but not later. All right. Of course. Okay. So for the Road Home podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn. Uh, we'll see you next time. Okay.